0: I have always wanted to have my own postage stamp not the kind you can now buy online where you put your child's picture on a stamp and somehow it's actually legitimate postage with the service i'm not sure how that works although if you have a child i'm sure your child would look adorable on a stamp if you've chosen that route it's a lovely idea what i want though is a stamp endorsed by the united states postal service available all over No postcard stamps either, obviously, full standard envelope size. And now I know what I would want on the stamp, or at least what series I would want to be in. In 1960, the Postal Service issued a set of six American credo stamps, lovely images in muted colors and elegant script. Written on them were credos, belief statements, value statements, from American founding fathers observe good faith and justice toward all nations, wrote George Washington. I have sworn hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man, Thomas Jefferson. And from the great Benjamin Franklin, fear to do ill and you need fear, not else. Now, first of all, obviously that series needed some women's voices. But it's not just for gender equity reasons that I feel this is the stamp for me. And I don't really think that my name actually belongs in a list that includes George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. But I do think that my name, all our names, belong in a list of people who have credos. People who know what they believe and aren't afraid to say it. As many of you know, I am a clergy person in two different traditions, Unitarian Universalism and ethical culture. This congregation also straddles those two traditions with our historical roots and our core identity within ethical culture and its organizing body, the American Ethical Union, and our still relatively new membership within the Unitarian Universalist Association. Because of both of these things, my own and this congregation's dual affiliations, I'm often asked what the differences are between the two movements. Of course I have an answer, it's my job to have an answer to that, and actually I think there are important and interesting differences, some of which are also things the two movements could learn from each other, whether or not they'd each want to adopt them. Unitarian Universalism, for instance, tends to honor religious pluralism and individual spiritual journeys a bit more than ethical culture, which in turn carries a stronger focus on ethics through relationship and focuses on the common language and experiences we share as humans. But, I always hasten to add that the two movements also have important things in common, and to me, none is more important than their status as creedless religious traditions. Before we dive into that a little more, a quick history lesson, or a reminder perhaps for many of you, Unitarianism and Universalism both evolved out of Christian traditions rooted in the radical side of the Reformation. They really got their foothold in America though in the 19th century, Unitarianism as an offshoot of Congregationalism and Universalism as a kind of outgrowth mostly of rural Baptist churches. Both Unitarianism and Universalism were, and I would say are, considered heresies. Unitarianism originally taught, we're talking about in the 18-teens, 1830s here, that God was a unity rather than a trinity, and that Jesus therefore wasn't part of God as a Trinitarian concept would teach, but rather God's son or a teacher or a prophet. The idea evolved over time. Unitarianism's other heresy was the denial of original sin, the idea that all people are born with the capacity to be good. Sorry, that's not original sin, that's what Unitarianism said, rather than with an inclination toward evil. There's original sin. Universalism, on the other hand, centered around the heresy of universal salvation, the idea that people couldn't be ultimately divided into good or bad, but that we would all end up in the same place. In its early years, different universalist preachers had different ideas about what exactly that might look like. Would everyone go to heaven right away? Would the bad people get a thousand years of purgatory first? But the end result was always the same. We were all eventually saved because no loving God could condemn some of God's children to eternal damnation. Okay, so that's a quick history of the original thoughts of American Unitarianism and universalism in the early to mid-19th century. I want to emphasize that both of the movements evolved dramatically over time and eventually ended up being what I think of as Protestant denominations that protested themselves out of Protestantism. (laughs) By the 1930s, both movements had incorporated significant elements of the growing American humanist tradition, and it was around then that the newly formed National Council of Churches decided that the Unitarians and the Universalists couldn't join them because they weren't really Christian. After that, there was no looking back. And by the time the Unitarians and the Universalists merged in 1962, they actually made the decision at the General Assembly of 1961, which means that right now in Charlotte, North Carolina, the 50th anniversary of that merger is being celebrated. By that time, neither were considered Christian traditions, although they both had elements of Christian teaching and style that continued to live in their movements. Okay, I just catch my breath here. That's a brief overview of a couple of hundred years of religious thought. But what about this creed stuff? After all, I've described some ideas which, although heretical, certainly sound like beliefs. How can I say that the Unitarian and Universalist traditions are creedless? And what does all of that have to do with ethical culture? The answer awaits history is so fun. One of the keys, Barry thinks history is fun too, or he's just laughing at me. One of the keys is that both Unitarianism and Universalism were organized on a covenantal basis, which is basically the way to bring a religious community together when it's not creedal. Neither of them ever had a litmus test for members, but instead asked members to covenant, to promise, to walk together with the community. On a practical level, because they were both continually evolving heresies, it would have been hard to put together a creed. Universalism, in its early years, has had, as I mentioned, these different ideas about how its core tenet really worked, and Unitarianism was built partly on the idea of the ever-expanding understanding of the human mind. Both movements used biblical criticism and emphasized reason much earlier than other religious traditions, which also tends to pull one away from formal creeds. I think, though, that one of the best ways to examine at least Unitarianism's status as a creedless tradition is to take a look at a time when, according to some, there was a push for a creed and what happened. And this is actually especially fun for us because it links in to ethical culture, giving us a glimpse of one of the earliest joint efforts between the two movements. So, let's find ourselves in the 1860s when a Unitarian minister named Henry Whitney Bellows was trying to organize the somewhat unorganized Unitarians into a more strongly connected system. Now, as someone who likes things organized, I have a lot of sympathy for Henry Bellows. I think mostly he was trying to help the Unitarians to be more effective in the world. But he thought that the way to do it was to solidify their place within the Christian tradition, to make really clear how they fit in and what they believed. Indeed, he actually wrote in a private letter to a friend, quote, I am persuaded that history shows no progress in any sect not built upon dogma, and that, inconvenient as it is, we must find and enunciate our creed. End quote. So, Henry Whitney Bellows proposed to this new organization he was putting together of Unitarian churches that they adopt what does seem an awful lot like a creed, and one that identified them as clearly within the Christian tradition. It's important to note that it wasn't really a creed in the sense we see in many churches. There was no expectation that individual members of Unitarian churches would have to ascribe to these beliefs to become members, but it came about as close as anything ever has in Unitarianism. So what happened? Well, as some of you might remember, the 1860s were also the time of the rising of transcendentalism within the Unitarian movement and really within American culture at large. As you can imagine, those transcendentalists, Ralph Waldo Emerson out in the mountain by himself, in the hill, and the grass, were not very pleased about, that's, he's a little more complex than that. <laughs> anyway, were not very pleased, these transcendentalists, about anything creedal in nature, nor were they planning to be part of an organization that called itself distinctly Christian. So they broke off from this particular organization that Bellows was founding and formed the Free Religious Association, allying themselves with other liberal religious folks, including, anybody? Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, who actually served as vice president of the Free Religious Association for at least a year. This was just around the time of ethical culture's founding, a little bit before it, actually, and is one of the first instances, really the first instance, of the two movements or clergy within the two movements working together. A few very liberal rabbis were also involved and others interested in the movement of free religion, of religion that was as far from creedal as you could get. As some of you might know, Felix Adler insisted on a creedless religious tradition from the beginning, arguing that his movement was for people with all kinds of beliefs. Diversity in the creed, unanimity in the deed, he wrote. We may think differently, but let's act together. Ironically, Adler left the Free Religious Association, in part because he found them too disorganized. (laughs) organization really was not a strong suit for the transcendentalists, and it does give you a little more sympathy for poor Reverend Bellows. Within 30 years, the organization that Henry Whitney Bellows had created had changed their tune and described themselves as outside, or at least broader than, the Christian tradition. So that's before the turn of the last century. The Transcendental. last last century, anyway, in the 1800s, the transcendentalists had won out in the battle for Unitarianism's soul, and it hasn't looked back since. One has to wonder, though, why Henry Whitney Bellows proposed a creed, or as the historian Conrad Wright refers to it, a creedlet. It wasn't quite a creed in the first place. Why, if it was, as he wrote to his friend, inconvenient, Did he think a creed was important to the growth of a religious movement? I have never been part of a tradition with a creed, but I know that some of you have. You might remember reciting the creed on Sunday mornings or learning it in catechism class. Some religious traditions don't speak their creeds aloud at each service, but have them as part of a membership ceremony or posted prominently in the building. One way or another, they get across the idea that if you belong to that community, you are ascribing to a certain set of beliefs. You may struggle with them, you may wonder about them, you may even be encouraged to wrestle with them and ask questions about them. But in the end, the community has some clarity about what they are, what they mean, and who belongs. Or rather, who believes. A couple of years ago, my colleague, Mary Herman, offered a wonderful platform on different kinds of religious traditions. Some of you might remember it. She spoke about traditions that were believing, traditions that were about belonging, and traditions that were about behaving. Many Christian traditions, which usually have clear creeds, are about belief. Jewish traditions are often more about belonging. And our own tradition tends to emphasize behaving, how we are in the world. But, as Mary said that day, it's still important what we believe. In fact, here is another way that Unitarian Universalism and ethical culture are alike. You can completely annoy their clergy with the exact same phrase. It goes like this, oh yeah, whichever tradition you're talking about, I've heard of that. That's that religion where you get to believe whatever you want. No, no, no. (laughs) This is not a religion where you can believe anything that you want but it's easy to see why someone more familiar with creedal traditions might think that and I imagine that that concern may have been behind Henry Bellows ill-fated attempt to create a creed for Unitarianism. After all, we in non creedal traditions have no test for membership, no set of beliefs we recite each week. Wes's own statement of purpose printed on the front of our program offers some of our hopes for who we are, but no one is asked to sign on the dotted line when they read it, and the hopes, not surprisingly, are really behavioral ones about who we want to be or what we want to do in the world, not what we believe. So how does anyone ever know what to believe at Wes, or at any ethical culture or Unitarian Universalist congregation for that matter? Well, both movements have created some guideposts. Unitarian Universalism developed a set of seven principles which congregations, not individual members, covenant to affirm and promote. Most of the principles, like the pieces of our Statement of Purpose at WES, are behavioral, how we want to be, what we want to do, but two of them can be understood as belief-based. The first principle is the inherent worth and dignity of every person, The idea that each person is worthy, which many trace to Unitarianism's 19th century heresy of the rejection of original sin. Remember that, it was about 10 minutes ago. And the seventh principle is respect for the interdependent web of life of which we are all a part, which I've actually heard connected to Universalism's idea of universal salvation. That the seventh principle is a much more modern, rational take on the idea that basically we're all in this together. One thing I like about the seven principles is that, unlike Henry Bellows attempted a creed, which came out of his own theology and thought, the principles came out of the people themselves. They were originally formulated at the time of merger in the 1960s and then redone in the 1980s through multiple years of congregational study and movement-wide votes. From the start, they were intended as descriptions of what people in Unitarian Universalist congregations already believed and agreed upon, rather than creating theology from on high that people were expected to sign on to. For some Unitarian Universalists, the seven principles are helpful in providing guideposts for what the movement stands for. And for others, of course, they don't feel that helpful— I was just reading a commission on appraisal report where somebody said that they would hardly have the seven principles read to them on their deathbed. (laughs) But for no one are they considered necessary to membership. Ethical culture has a similar set of principles called the eight commitments of ethical culture. Again, many are behavioral, but some read more like beliefs, including the first one which simply states, ethics are central and then has some lengthy explanation because we do like to talk and write. Created by leader Lois Kellerman in collaboration with other leaders and with members of the movement, so again, a groundswell creation. The eight commitments are guideposts for many ethical culturists, and again, not for all. So we're back to that question, in a religious tradition without a creed, and in fact in a tradition that resists not only creeds but even formulations of what we might all believe if we choose to, how does an individual member figure out what to believe? I've sometimes heard that this kind of religious and ethical path is the hardest to follow because it requires so much thought. Much easier to accept the answers provided to us than have to go searching for our own. But I think that's a bit of a fallacy for two reasons. First, those in creedal traditions don't necessarily agree with the entirety of the creeds that they recite. They may have to do just as much struggling to find what they truly believe themselves, despite having answers available to them. Second, and more importantly for us, my guess is that many of us really do know what we believe, if we're only brave enough to name it for ourselves. When I was growing up in the Unitarian Universalist tradition, I participated in a coming-of-age program that culminated in writing our own credo statements and presenting them to the congregation. Credo, of course, is the personal version of a creed, It's what you believe, literally the Latin for I believe, and I like that it doesn't purport to be anything more. But still, it's a clarifying and somewhat scary moment to have to say, at 13 years of age, in front of all the people who have watched you grow up, what you believe. Our teens do something similar when they share what they learned during their coming-of-age experiences here and when they graduate from high school. I remember the advice given to me then, particularly when confronted with the question or the statement that this is the place where you can believe anything you want. No, my teacher said, it's the place where you believe whatever your heart tells you, you must. I will tell you what else is a clarifying moment, though. Having a microphone stuck in your face. I have had a few occasions in the last couple of months to be in that situation, as reporters have approached me for a pithy comment, both at the human rights campaign clergy call in May and at the D.C. vote rally so many of us attended yesterday. What I find interesting about what I say, which I, by the way, can never bear to listen to later, so you have to tell me how it comes out, what I find interesting is that it almost always circles back to the inherent worth of every person— A principle that is core in both Unitarian Universalist and ethical culture tradition, and which I must believe in deeply, because I say it really all the time. I often talk about equality, and sometimes I talk about how every person is not just worthy, but is precious, loved. That's not necessarily that well planned out, it's just what comes out of my mouth when the microphone is nearby. So, I guess, I believe in the worth of every person, in the preciousness and beauty of the individual human spirit. And because of that, I believe we must be treated equally. And from there, stems much of my work for social justice. I remember hearing someone who I thought said his credo just beautifully. It was Peter Morales, who now serves as president of the Unitarian Universalist Association. I was listening to him in a candidate forum, and honestly, these three sentences were much of the reason that I voted for him instead of the other candidate. The question was to give your elevator speech, the few sentences that you have time for if you're in an elevator going from floor one to floor seven, and your companion has just asked, well, what does your religion believe? The other candidate's answer was lovely, too, about the history of Unitarian Universalism and the people who had fought for freedom of religion and belief. But, although I don't remember the exact words, the spirit of what Peter Morales said just captured my imagination. It went something like this. I believe in love and respect and healing the world. If you believe in that, too, then your religion and mine are the same. Credos are simple. That's part of what makes them different from creeds. They speak just to what you believe, to what you think is true and right, to how you frame your life. They aren't adages or guideposts for anything else, just the few things that feel meaningful to you. I remember while I was in seminary, a pastor who was working with his congregation on their credo statements. They were using a book of credos as a starting point. And although this was a Methodist church, one of those that certainly has a formal creed, the book they were using wasn't based on that at all. I can't remember the title now, but I remember one of the credos that the book presented and that was used as a model for the congregation. I believe in being nice to the pizza delivery guy. There was a little more explanation, of course, but the idea was that what this person believed in most was kindness, especially to those who might be easy to overlook. So what do you believe? When someone asks you that question, whether or not you're in an elevator, when someone hears you mention Wes or ethical culture and asks, well, what do you believe anyway? How do you answer? Mary and I talk about this a lot, and one thing we're sure of is that the answer shouldn't start with, so back in 1876, a reference to the founding date of ethical culture, as much as we both love history, we know that's not what your friend or neighbor or just that person in the elevator needs to know. The answer doesn't need to be a lesson, and it can't be a creed, so what it really is is a credo. It's an I believe. For just a moment now, I want you to close your eyes and imagine yourself on the elevator or with a microphone stuck in your face. What do you believe anyway? Start with I believe and see what follows. Ding, we're on floor seven. (laughs) Actually, that might not be a bad way to live one's life. Start with I believe and see what follows. Remember to check back in on the sentences every now and then and to try them out with other people. We are not just a collection of individuals who believe different things. We are a community of people who walk together through life. Our beliefs, although our own, must also stand up to the practice of them in our shared work. But in the end, they are our own. And that is a precious gift in a world where many religious traditions, many philosophies ask us not to grapple for ourselves, but just to sign on the dotted line. There is no dotted line here, just a postage stamp waiting for you to write on it. Start with, I believe, and see what follows.